The following is a production of Unexpected Paths Media. Don't you think it's time for you to join the mission? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 30 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast, where we talk about writing spies and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. Today, I'm going to read from something I'm rewriting. It's not published yet. Actually, this is its second or third, probably third, rewrite. And no, I'm not an indie author who dashes something out and publishes it right away. I kind of follow the typical traditional publishing process, only not with a traditional publisher, with me as the publisher. So I draft, I edit, I rewrite, I edit some more, and I rewrite again until, well, I can't stand looking at it anymore. Then it's off to beta readers and my editor, either of which can mean another rewrite. And that's the writing life, or that's my writing life. I don't rush to publish. I have a couple of fans who constantly message me and say, you need to write faster, you need to write more, but it just doesn't work that way for me. Sorry. So this novel I'm going to read from will be the first book of a trilogy entitled Meeting the Enemy. Now, where did I get that from? Well, it comes from a Walt Kelly comic strip character named Pogo who said, we have met the enemy and he is us. Now, Walt Kelly trained as a graphic artist under another Walt, Disney, but he left that studio after five or so years to branch out into other things. He decided animation wasn't for him, but he was grateful to Disney and wrote him a letter to that effect for the training that he got there at Disney. So he went on to illustrate comic books in the DC comics, you know, Superman, and he drew editorial cartoons for various newspapers. He was very satiric. That was kind of his shtick. He satired, that's not a word, satire is not a word. He wrote satire about Anybody who struck him as overbearing or full of him or herself, he, he was a pretty interesting guy. He finally settled on doing a syndicated comic strip called Pogo, and it was about a collection of animals that lived in Georgia's Okefenokee Swamp. Pogo the Possum was the central character. And other regular characters were an alligator, a turtle, an owl, and a skunk. And in this comic strip, which was the height 
of his satirical writings, he poked fun at both anti-communist agitators like Joseph McCarthy and also communist doctrinaire individuals. Uh, this would have been in the 50s and 60s, so probably you know, Khrushchev and, and some other Soviet leader or communist leader. And he used, uh, you know, animal characters to portray them. My grandmother loved this comic strip. It was very popular. She read the comics, and this is probably where I developed my love of the comics, of comic strips in a newspaper. Every morning when she got, she got about three newspapers and that's what she turned to first was the comic strips because she liked some that were that was in one paper but not in the other so that's why she got several of them so she could get all of her favorite comic strips and she used comic strips to teach me how to read and the one that she used most often and I can remember it clearly was Pogo I think I probably liked it back then for the cute little talking animals because probably the political commentary was over my head at age five. So the phrase that Pogo utters, we have met the enemy and he is us, was coined in 1971 for an Earth Day poster that Kelly did, Walt Kelly did. And it shows Pogo picking up litter from the Okefenokee Swamp, but he faces an unending supply of it as he looks out over the swamp. The trash that's been dumped there just extends to the horizon. So it was a very evocative poster that he did. But that phrase, we have met the enemy and he is us, re-emerged post 9-11 when abuses in the Iraq war and extreme interrogation measures came to light and were criticized. Since this trilogy, Meeting the Enemy, is about 9-11 and its aftermath, Meeting the Enemy seemed to be a good title. And the three books in the trilogy are Terror, Retribution, and Rendition. Now, Although I was involved in the aftermath of 9-11 regarding aviation issues, and I've researched the events of that day extensively, my take on these events is purely fictional. As with all of my work that's based on a historical event or current events, you will recognize things in it if you followed this, you know, when it happened and its immediate aftermath. So let me set up the first reading a bit. Of course, this takes place about six months after the events in my novel, A War of Deception. Mai and Alexei are fully retired as field operatives, though they continue to consult when needed. 
On 9-11, Mai is with her business manager looking at potential office space for the American branch of her Irish business, Euro Enterprises. And the space she's looking at just happens to be in number two World Trade Center. Alexei is at the UN Complex in New York, consulting with the head of the UN Security Forces there, or as I call them because the UN loves acronyms, UNSEC4. And then he gets a phone call from Mai about something that's happening at the World Trade Center. Meeting the Enemy, Book One, Terror, Chapter One, Death on a Beautiful Day, September 11th, 2001, New York, New York. Bereft of furniture and interior walls, the floor space seemed both infinite and to float on air. Only clusters of undecorated support columns, stairwells, and elevator shafts broke the expanse. Three women walked the uncarpeted concrete floors, their heels echoing off the building's glass and steel shell. The footage, 40,000 square feet of it, was almost beyond belief, and the view was remarkable. New York City spread out before them beneath a bright blue morning. Legend had it from the restaurant on the top floor, you could almost perceive the curvature of the earth. From the northeast corner on the 98th floor of Number 2 World Trade Center, Mai Fisher, still acclimating herself to retirement from her life's work, could see Long Island, and the Atlantic Ocean in one direction, a hint of the Appalachian Mountains in the other. The exterior walls of glass, the empty space, the neutral colored floor, all emphasized her sensation of floating. Legend also had it, when the winds were strong enough, you could feel the building sway. Mai broke away from the other two women and walked to one of the exterior walls. Only thick glass separated her from the outside. The twin to this building, number one World Trade Center, gleamed like gold in the early morning sun. A spectacular sight on a cloudless, perfect September day. Mai looked down. This was somewhat how the ground looked from an airplane. And again, she lost the sensation of standing on solid ground. Well, as solid as it could be nearly a thousand feet above that ground. Without realizing it, she planted her feet shoulder-width apart to steady herself. Behind her, the two women talked in low tones. One woman's accent was almost the stereotype of a New Yorker, a bit nasal, somewhat condescending and pleading both. This prime real estate had been months without a lessee. The broker pushed to close the deal. The other voice, its Irish lilt dulcet, asked all the right questions and pushed too, but for the best deal. Over her shoulder, 
my ask. Why did the previous tenant vacate? Her voice implied class and sophistication, perhaps even nobility or aristocracy with its highbrow British tones. Mai had thought the real estate broker might have bobbed a curtsy when Mai first spoke to her. The conversation ceased, and when no response came, Mai turned to them, austere in her dark pantsuit with its knee-length jacket, her hair in a tight French braid, hands clasped behind her back. The broker covered her panic at the question with a thin, brief smile. The CEO was afraid of heights. We tried locating his office in the center of the space with no windows, but he still knew he was on the 98th floor. She looked from Mai to the third woman and stage whispered, She's, uh, she's not afraid of heights, is she? Roshin O'Shea gave a reassuring smile. Not at all. Mai returned to her study of the view as Roshin picked up the negotiations without having lost a beat. Mai tuned it out. The minutiae of business bored her to tears. She had left the details to Roshin all her life, and Roshin was why Mai's net worth approached the ten-figure mark. And they were here today because Roshin had made a good case for moving Euro Enterprises' American offices from the 43rd floor of one World Trade Center to hear. Mai watched as the near glow from the other building shifted as the sun rose higher. Roshin haggled now at the level of pennies on the cost per square foot, and Mai had to smile. Roshin lived for this sort of interplay. A movement in Mai's periphery made her head turn. She looked north and frowned, her hands unclasping and falling to her sides. An airliner was significantly off course and flying too fast, too low. Mai could recognize the airline's logo, American Airlines. On a straight-line course for one World Trade Center. Turn, Mai murmured. Her pulse quickened her fingers reaching for cockpit controls that weren't there. Turn! That was louder, insistent. The business conversation stopped again. Mai stepped forward, stopped by the window, her hands pressed against its glass. Turn, damn it, turn! The twin-engine Boeing 767 smashed into the north face of the north tower about one-third of the way from the top. An explosion of fuel blossomed, the sound a muffled Pump. The floor beneath Mai's feet shook. She stepped back, but couldn't take her eyes from the conflagration as she analyzed. A clear day. No impediments to visibility. The flight path had been steady. No attempt to slow down or veer off. This was no accident. All right, we'll break here. As stark as the images of machines that I happen to love, airplanes, being used as weapons was to me that day. It was an image I imagined that disturbed me and does to this day. 
And that's the image of firemen and police climbing those stairs in the Twin Towers because that was their job. There was no choice involved. People needed to be rescued, and they were going to do that. More than 300 firefighters died doing that job. They didn't run from it or refuse to do it. They did it. My local fire department, here where I live now, had a member who was acquainted with one of the NYFD firemen who died, and at that local fire station, there is a memorial to him, a piece of a beam from one of the towers. Twenty years later, I'm not ready to talk about what I did at the Federal Aviation Administration that day, other than sending everyone who worked for me home long before the official word was given. Both my spouse and my brother called me and wanted me to leave, but I was what we euphemistically call essential personnel. I still can't talk about what I did in the aftermath, not only because some of it is painful to remember, but because it's classified. But some of what did happen that's not classified will make its way into book one. And that's honestly the first time in my writing that I will bring the FAA into it. I loved working for the FAA. Don't get me wrong. It was a great place to work. I was being paid to write about airplanes. It was like the most perfect job in the world for me. And people assumed when I said I was going to retire to write for myself, that I was going to write cozy mysteries about airports and airplanes and pilots. But I'd done that for 30 plus years, and I wanted to write about what had always fascinated me, and that was espionage. And I really haven't worked aviation much into my writing at all, other than my is a pilot, and she and Alexei go on their missions using her private jet. She has a crew that flies it, although she sometimes, you know, to keep current, flies from, you know, from the cockpit. But, you know, you can't really write something about 9-11 unless you involve aviation. And so this is the first time that the FAA plays a small but significant part in a plot of mine. What I read to you earlier was a scene I wrote a few days after 9-11, after I had been in the operations center for maybe three or four days straight. And writing, as I've said before, is my way of dealing with my emotions. So I wrote it. There's a little bit, there's more to it that I didn't read. And I put it aside. I really didn't know if I was ever going to do anything with it again. It, maybe it was just a cathartic piece that I had written and maybe nothing would come of it. But 
in between the time I wrote it sometime in September and sometime the next year, maybe a year, maybe even the following year after that, maybe even early 2003, after I had listened many times to Bruce Springsteen's 9-11 album called The Rising. And if you've never listened to it, listen to it. They are very powerful songs. Some of them written about specific people that he doesn't name, but specific people who died in the Twin Towers. It's amazing music, some of his best. It was also his first studio album in seven years, and he recorded it starting in January of 2002 and finished it in March of 2002, and it was released, I believe, in July. After listening to those songs and playing it so much that I could hear them in my head even when I didn't have the CD. Yes, I'm that old. I had a CD. Without listening to the CD, I realized that I had to write a story about this, and the story had to be somebody who got out alive. And there were several instances of that in those immediate first hours after the buildings collapsed there were people, including some firefighters, who got out. Not many, unfortunately, but some did. And I read the accounts of that very closely in doing my research. Now, there are no characters, when in that scene in the book, there are no characters based on real people. None at all. I was not going to be that exploitative. So then after I finished that, I realized I couldn't stop there because I had to write about the war in Afghanistan and the hunt for Osama bin Laden. And then after I drafted something about that, I realized I had to write a book about leading up to the Iraq war and all the fake intelligence and so forth. And of course, every story I write is far more complicated than real life you know, writers get to do that. And then also there has to be some drama between Mai and Alexei. And it's pretty significant this time. So in that first reading, we saw what was going on with Mai on that day. So now we're going to see Alexei's reaction to events. And this is from a couple of chapters later, because again, as you know, I don't write in a linear way. So there's the first reading, which is the first chapter, is what we call the hook or the inciting event in writing. Then I have a little bit of a flashback, and then we return to 9-11. Traffic from the UN complex near the East River was a typical Manhattan gridlock, but now, ten times worse. Cars had stopped with drivers standing outside, gawking at the thick black smoke billowing from the direction of the Twin Towers. From the shotgun seat in the special operations van, Alexei Bukharin watched the smoke, too. The team leader came forward and crouched by Alexei's seat, addressing him in her custom German formality. Herr Bukharin, we have a report. A second plane struck 
the Azatawa. Mai was right. Damn it, she was always right. He dialed her mobile and heard a recording explaining the lines were overloaded and to please try again later. We have a satellite picture if you wish to. Alexei undid his seatbelt and stepped over her to head to the rear of the van. The 15-person UNSEC-4 unit sat on bench seats in their tactical black BDUs and body armor, automatic rifles within reach. Alexei went to the technician peering at a computer monitor and looked over his shoulder. Both towers burned. How many gallons of fuel did an airliner carry? Mai had once explained with jets you calculated in pounds of fuel, not gallons. Ten thousand? Fifteen thousand? A hundred thousand? When he saw her, he'd have to ask her. When, not if. Which is the North Tower? he asked. The tech pointed to the tower on the right in the image, the one with the tall telecommunications antenna. That was the first one hit, Alexei asked. Yes, sir, at 0845, South Tower at 0903. Alexei looked at his watch, 0915. He straightened and looked at the men and women whose body armor read Special Agent. The occasions when UNSEC-4 had deployed in full tactical mode in America were few, but people seeing Special Agent would assume they were law enforcement and do what they were told. A surge of adrenaline made Alexei's fingers quiver, and for some reason, his mother's death earlier in the year, the image of her in her coffin flared in his head. No, he would not think of women close to him who had died. But the adrenaline fueled a need to act. The person responsible for this wouldn't be standing around watching, but Alexei would find someone's ass to kick. The van slowed even more. Unacceptable. Alexei called to the driver. Use your lights and siren. The team leader, now standing at his side, frowned and said, Sir, technically this authority we do not have. Considering our mission, to ourselves we should not call attention. Alexei settled his narrowed eyes on her. She had clear blue eyes. She was attractive even in her body armor. The Aryan ideal. Well, he'd try not to hold that against her. Twenty years ago, he'd have nailed her without a qualm. But he'd given that up for the woman he loved. The woman he desperately wanted to find. Germans responded well to authority and he gave her that. You know who I am, he said. Yes, sir. On my personal authority. Special advisor to the directorate was higher in her chain of command. She looked toward the driver and ordered, Lights! Siren! Now! Once the sirens engaged and the lights began to pulse, the van moved at a more satisfying pace, though still not fast enough for Alexei. He went back to his seat up front. The towers looked like absurdly large chimneys, and he might have laughed at the sight if his wife weren't inside one of them. 
He hoped for once her instincts to help others didn't surface and that she was getting out of the tower as fast as she could. Her last call, only a few minutes before but seeming like hours, indicated she was on the 80th-something floor. He tried her mobile again and once more got the circuits busy recording. He turned in his seat and called to the technician. Can you tell which floor was hit in the South Tower? The sat image is a bird's eye, sir, but from television footage, I'd say somewhere above floor 80? Too close for Alexei's comfort. What would burning jet fuel do to the building's steel infrastructure? He decided not to think about such things and hoped his sheer will alone would make the traffic get out of their way. All right, that's enough of a tease. There's a lot more rewriting to be done, so probably a year from now is when it'll come out. As I said last month, in August, I'll be featuring readings from two of my recent novellas, A Change for the Better and Dateline Belgrade. A couple of mini reviews before we sign off today. If you have Amazon Prime, rent the movie Nobody. It's reasonable. It's only $5.99 for a 24-hour rental. It's the story of a typical suburban family stuck in a routine. They get up, they go to work, they come back home, they eat dinner, they go to bed. Until someone breaks into their house one night. That leads to a series of events that shows the father isn't exactly who he claims to be, that he was something else in another life, that he has an interesting past. He ends up pissing off some Russian mobsters and, of course, with Russian mobsters, mayhem ensues. Now, Christopher Lloyd, as the man's father, steals the show. Not going to tell you the scenes, but he absolutely steals the show. It's a very violent movie. I mean, they used a lot of fake blood and what looks like exploding heads and so forth, but it's a dramedy a drama with overtones of comedy that's extremely well done. I liked it a lot, and I think you will too. Because the the hint is that the father was some sort of spy in his previous life, and maybe even his father was too. It's, it's a very interesting movie, very interesting premise. Now, the second movie that... I liked this past week is on Netflix and it's called Gunpowder Milkshake. It's somewhat like Black Widow in that it's about women assassins whose existence is manipulated by a man, actually a group of men. But one assassin, played by Doctor Who's Karen Gillan, Amy Pond, has a difficult aftermath from an assignment a young girl she's orphaned and now needs to protect. Also, lots of comedic moments, plenty of sardonic dialogue, also extremely violent. And believe me, after seeing the librarian in this movie in one particular scene, you will never talk back to a librarian again. 
So both of these movies are good ways to while away an afternoon, but make sure the kids are out of the house unless they're older, because as I said, it's pretty violent, both of them. And now you know what it's time for. Yes, my COVID rant. The CDC is considering reinstating the mask requirement for even vaccinated people, but I haven't left the house without a mask in over a year and a half, so no problem for me. Please wear a mask and please, please get vaccinated. More than 80% of new COVID cases involving the Delta variant are unvaccinated people. When you have the Republican governor of Alabama saying, it's now time to blame the unvaccinated people, you know this is pretty serious. The number of infections and the number of deaths are rising again after months of declining. Now, we're all citizens of this country, and we have a responsibility to this country that goes beyond individuality. So, wash your hands, wear a mask, watch your social distancing, work on getting vaccinated, and wherever you are, make sure you also keep an eye out for spies. This episode of Real Spies, Real Lives is copyrighted 2021, all rights reserved. Tune in next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.